0: as we go uh, to our text. In John chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 40. And really, we have been in the, uh, a series through the Gospel of John. If you're just joining us this morning, we've been in this series since January, and we'll continue to just keep uh, going week after week through the Gospel of John. And, and as I've said before, there's no uh, bad time or too late of time to join. If you're just here this morning, this is a great time uh, to jump in But really, I want to give you some context, because what has happened earlier in John, specifically in verses 16 through 21, is Jesus displays his great love and his great care for his disciples, of how much he loves them and comes to them, speaking truth to them of when he walks on the water and he says, it is I, do not be afraid. And so I want to encourage you as we get into this part of our text that is also very heavy that Jesus begins by instructing and loving his true disciples. And that should be a great encouragement to us as well. And so as we look at this text, for the last three weeks, we have really been looking at a dialogue between Jesus and the people that are seeking him. And we've broken down this conversation into smaller verse segments so that we can really uh, dig in and further understand what is happening. Now, as I mentioned before, normally when we hear people seeking Jesus, this sounds like an incredible thing, but as we learn from the text, we see that their motivation for seeking Jesus is not because they want to know him, but really what they're after is his stuff, his miracles, his signs. And so we really learned last week specifically that the people are not really seeking Jesus for Jesus. Jesus. That they're actually seeking him because they ate their fill of the bread and the fish that he multiplied at the beginning of John chapter 6. And what they really wanted, what their real desire was, was for Jesus to be the new Moses and just fill their stomachs. And even as we learn between verses 22 up to 34, it's that the people continually missed what Jesus was doing. They didn't get that he was pointing them to himself. And see, they were so focused on what they wanted that they overlooked and and, and ultimately they even ignored that Jesus was pointing them to what they really needed. And we even saw this in how they viewed the work of God, that they saw Jesus as the go-to, but in their minds it was to do work and to get bread, But Jesus' answer to them was that it is God's work and our response. And so we resolved on Jesus pointing the people to this life-giving bread, to himself. But he did not yet give a full disclosure of himself as that bread and as that life that he spoke of. And so today in our text, Jesus is not only going to point the people more fully to himself, But also, he's going to make clear the work of the Father in salvation, how one comes to him and how we might look and believe upon the Son alone. And so as we go to read and and apply our text this morning, what we're going to learn is that Jesus is the bread of life, which is given by the Father's own will to secure and save those who look and believe. If you're taking notes this morning, those are your fill-in-the-blanks, and we'll begin reading in John chapter 6, in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you. And God, I pray that as we look to your word and we seek to apply it, God, I pray that in this time you would point us to yourself. I pray that you would uh, use this text and you would uh, use me this morning To point people to Jesus. God, that is the the greatest work that we can do together. And so, God, may we come to see clearly how to genuinely look and believe upon Jesus. I thank you for your word, Lord God. I pray that this morning, even in the differences we may have even in the different approaches and thinking we may have, that, God, together we can be unified in the truth of who Jesus is. And so, God, we love you, and we thank you for your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I have ended the last few weeks of our time together with a series of questions that really have caused us to ask, if we are truly seeking Jesus... And I want you to understand that the heart of this has not been to get you to question your faith, but to really root it further and more truly in Jesus Christ. See, in the first verse of our text today, Jesus gives us the incredible answer to the questions we've been asking. He really gives us the the substance of our seeking. When he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now this is really the first of seven I am statements in the gospel of John that Jesus will make. And the expression really looks back to what is said in Exodus chapter 3, when God said to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am who I am. Has sent me to you. So when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, it is an implicit claim to deity. And we really saw this foreshadowed earlier in John chapter 6 when Jesus walked on the waters to his disciples. That Jesus said to his disciples, It is I. And so both in verse 20 and here specifically in verse 35, the Greek rendering of that statement is, Ago emi which together means I am, I am. And what Jesus is doing in this is applying this divine name, I am, I am, to himself. Again, last week we saw many parallels between the book of Exodus in the Old Testament and John chapter 6. And I really uh, had a difficult time restraining all of those parallels. All of what I wanted to draw out of the Old Testament to show you what's happening in the New. I, I struggled to keep that to a page. I just wanted to go on and on and on and share the truth of what we see. Because Jesus has continually laid before the people that all that God did points to all that God will do. In fact, Jesus is continually showing the people how God provided before and how he is now presenting to them that which will not fade and that which will not fail. And in this, Jesus is pointing the people to himself. He's pointing the people to himself as the life-giving bread and it is an implicit claim deity, that Jesus is not the bread giver, Jesus is the bread. And he tells us further what happens for those who come and believe in this bread of life. At The end of verse 35 that we read, it says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I would imagine if we think about the people in the text that we've been learning about, that they are very hungry physically that off of the way that Jesus has just filled them, they're longing for more and they're hungry more and more. In fact, we saw this in their quick response in our text last week of verse 34 when they say, Sir, give us this bread always. But again, this is an important distinction, church, because they're not coming to him as Lord of their life. They're coming to him as the provider of their physical need. And so this is why Jesus said in verse 35, those that come shall not hunger. Those that believe shall never thirst. Now see, this is what we have seen all throughout this chapter. And what we learn is the core truth of the Christian faith, that you can have everything and not have Christ. But if you have Christ, then he is all you need. See, what Jesus is exposing in saying this is the motivation and the desire of the people. And I would say this is even what what is really exposed in us when we hear this. Because if we are seeking Jesus and coming to him with the expectation and the hope that he is going to give us our best life now, we are going to be wildly disappointed and probably very frustrated at Jesus And if you are believing because that's just what a good person does, then you are going to be challenged, and I would even contend that you are going to be very offended by Christ's call and Christ's words. And in all of that, what is true is that you are still going to be soul-hungry and soul-thirsty, that you can do all the Bible studies in the world, and you can attend all the church services, and you can serve and you can give in all of the ministries but if what you are seeking is not the Lord Jesus Christ the true bread of life then you are ultimately and only going after an empty and a false religion so are are you seeking see often in this we're seeking but we're not really coming we're believing but we're not really drinking Again, you can have everything and not have Christ, but if you have Christ, then he is all you need. See, this is why in verse 36, Jesus continued to say to the people, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. See, for us today, church, we are a culture rich in resources, but poor in practice, I mean, many of us have Bibles. We probably have multiple Bibles in our homes. And what they display is the beauty and the majesty and the deity of Christ. But but are we believing upon him? Are we really seeking him? See, the people in the text were literally face-to-face with Jesus, and still they did not believe. See, they're listening but they're not really listening. They've seen, but they're not really seeing. So church, let me tell you, Jesus is the one who is needed to satisfy that longing that is deep within you. And if you do not have Jesus for that satisfaction and that longing, you will never be satisfied. In fact, that yearning pain will remain unanswered and that aching void will be unfilled. And so if you are here today and you do not believe in Jesus, I long with a deep ache in my soul for you to understand nothing else in this life will satisfy you. That you will continue to long for that lasting satisfaction that brings joy to your soul. In fact, often what we find is that we tend on our own to chase all things in this world of the flesh to try and satisfy that but you must come to Jesus for the relief of spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst because nothing else will do. You have to abandon and really throw off all of your own obsessions and your sins and all of your worldly pleasures that take the place of the Savior and go to Jesus. You you have to leave whatever it is that you currently do in an attempt to satisfy that eternal longing, and come to Jesus. Because as we've heard from the mouth of Jesus himself, whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. And so let me ask, are you seeking? Are you seeing? And are you believing? See, the people are not truly seeing and believing in Jesus. In fact, the first section of our text that we see really ends with the the gift of God rejected. That God offers his son, the bread of life, to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. In fact, this is what John writes in his prologue in verse 11 of chapter 1. And so as Jesus continues to speak, he points the people, and even us today, to the profound work of God and those who genuinely seek and believe in him. And here in verse 37 and 38, he begins to explain the work and the will of the Father. And this will not only offend, but it's really going to harden the hearts of those in the text today. But really, even this has long been a debated text in the church. See, Jesus continues by saying in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, The first part of that is most problematic for many because what that says is there are those that the Father gives to Jesus and there are those that he does not. And in this, we get into the very debated topics of election and predestination. Now, I want you to understand, I am not going to preach on these doctrines in their entirety in this time. We would be here for a great amount of time But for the sake of this, I do want to talk about these, but I also want you to understand over the last three years of my preaching, I have taught on these. I have talked about these, and my position and my conviction has not changed on these. But what is obvious, as I have been praying deeply about this time and deeply about many of you, is that we are getting into a huge debate on theology, which can get really ugly. And so let me just be clear, all of us can differ on this, and I'm okay with that. I know, in fact, that there are some of you that I have talked with, I have met with, I love you dearly, and you disagree with me on this, and I'm okay with that. In fact, agreement on this is not my main point, but how we are faithful to the text of the Bible is. And so with the desire to explain this, simply put, and I mean super simple there are two main camps of thinking one group believes we choose god and the other group believes god chooses us and some would say well part of that is he he picked us because he saw we were trying hard or we were going to seek him but really we know that that cannot be the case because in romans chapter 3 verse 10 and 11 It clearly tells us none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And so before we did anything, good or evil, before the foundation of the world, which Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, God chose those who are his to be his. That's predestination. And in that, we find one of the beautiful truths of the Bible that I've laid before you time and time again, that it's always been God reaching out to man, not man reaching to God. And our reaching back is in response to his reaching. And so what this means is that where we chose hell, God chose heaven. Where we chose damnation, God chose salvation. Where we chose to run from God, God chose to run after us. By sending Jesus. And in this, I think we can all agree that God's choices are far better than our own. And so let me be very, very clear here that there are many varying opinions on this. And you, may, you and I may differ on what we believe here. And I am okay with that. I am not so afraid of your theological differences that we cannot together be the church and have differing views on these things. But I want you to understand So that we are very clear, as I've said before, my conviction and my belief, as I have prayed constantly and studied over the years, is that I personally hold the reform position. That God chooses us first, and then we choose God second. That God puts the Holy Spirit in us, and then the Holy Spirit gives us the faith to cry out to God. And really, this is a big difference to what many believe but really what we see is the heart of this truth in what Paul says in Ephesians chapter one. In verse four through six, he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Church, did you catch that at the beginning? He does this in love. See, I want you to understand what is clearly being said here by Jesus in the text. It is that the father chooses and gives. The son sacrifices and secures. And even what we learned earlier, specifically in John chapter three, is that the spirit applies and regenerates. And so listen, this is a gracious and loving work of the true and triune God of the Bible. These are doctrines of grace. And this is all of what is simply wrapped up in a beautiful truth that God alone saves sinners. Now, how he does that, we may differ, but that he does that, we cannot. That God in his grace saves sinners through the person and the work of his own son upon the cross. And so this is the point that Jesus is making here, that those who seek him genuinely do so because of the grace of God and a genuine desire to know him. And so look at what Jesus continues to say in this very same verse. It's that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Church, that is an incredible promise and invitation from the Son of God. That those that genuinely seek him are welcomed in, not cast out. But of course, what comes into the debate and into the conversation is, but who knows who is going to believe? Who knows? What we see is God alone does. I do not and you do not, and we dare not try to assume, and that is a game, church, of which I will never desire to play. And so, when the Bible speaks of whoever, I will preach Christ to all that will hear, and I will rejoice in whoever believes in him. And so, dear friends, if you have genuinely come to Jesus, be encouraged, be rooted by his own words that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. And see, look at what he says about this work and this promise in the following verse. In verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, in these verses, Jesus is not saying things to push people away, but to further point them to a greater purpose And a greater motivation. That he alone satisfies our deepest spiritual needs. And that is the will of God the Father. Church, nothing is more sure and true than the will of God. That you and I can commit ourselves to a work on our own, but it does not last and it will not save. That Jesus' work is perfect and that it is the will of God the Father for Jesus to die, to secure, and to save. That he does this willingly. I mean, dear, dear friend, dear Christian, have you considered that for your sake, it was the will of God to crush his own son? I love you, but for your sake, I could never imagine crushing one of my own sons for you that way. But Jesus does this willingly, taking on the wrath of God by the Father's will for those who believe. And see, here's what we find in the final two verses of what we see in this incredible text is a profound hope for the believer and a gospel invitation for the unbeliever. See, Jesus says in verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now see, right in the middle of this verse is the incredible hope for the believer, where Jesus says, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And here we are given a reminder of eternal security in Jesus, that when we come to him in true faith, we do not fail or fall, we are secure And we are not lost because he shall lose nothing. Now here again is where we may have some differences because others will insert the doctrine that they may still lose their salvation. And I want to be honest with you, that is not a doctrine I will adhere to because if I can lose a gift from the Father of his own will, which he gives If I could lose that by my own failing and by my own will, then I would have lost it already a thousand times over. Now, what I do not believe is the notion of once saved, always saved. That you can make a claim, say, I believe in Jesus, take that as an ID card, and walk away and never have relationship with him or his church ever again. But I do believe in a security that is in Jesus Christ when we truly believe. And so because I love you, I I wanna speak to these things more pointedly as I have before, but as I told the last service, I, I have no problem in gospel repetitiveness. I have no problem saying what I've said before to say it again if it points us more to the gospel. And so see, what we need to know and understand is that the question in the Bible is never can you lose your salvation. That question never comes up but rather what is brought up time and time and time again is have you been saved to begin with? See, the scriptures are very clear that you can have spiritual experiences and you may even have seasons of your life that you like the idea of Jesus, even passionately like and love the idea of Jesus, but still not know him and love him and truly follow him. And so what the Bible teaches about salvation is that if you are truly saved, you persevere, you keep on until the end because of the preservation of saving grace in Jesus Christ, given to him by God the Father. And so no, you you cannot lose your salvation if you are truly saved. But you can not be saved and think you are see this is this is the shocking fact we see many times in the Gospel of John that there are those that are seeking Jesus and believing in jesus 's name, but they do not fully trust in him for saving and, and in that in the verse of verse thirty nine it carries a great weight and further hope for the believer. see Jesus said that he will Raise up those that believe on the last day, see for all of us death what death looks like to us is a defeat or a loss. In fact, it looks to us in many ways as though at least our bodies are lost, that there 's no hope there, and some of us even fear death, and we may think he loses nothing of, of all that he is been given by the Father, as verse 39 says. But still, there is that concern of our flesh where we fear the sting of death and loss. And church, let me point you to what Jesus says twice. I will raise it up on the last day. So not even your body will be lost. See, this is the great comfort and hope for us that God the Father has willed it, that Christ should lose nothing, not even your body. And so let me ask you, as to all of us in the room, are we seeking? Are we seeing? And are we truly believing? See, Jesus is laying this before the people he's interacting with. And as we close in verse 40, we see a great invitation That Jesus extends. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if you didn't notice, this is the third time that Jesus has said, This is the will of my Father. And so, as Jesus invites them to come to him in this, he's also reminding them that he is good. He is true to come to. That he wasn't interested in his own agenda, but in his Father's own will. And what is the will of the Father? Verse 40 tells us that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. See, it is clear in Scripture, church, that the salvation of those whom the Father gives to Jesus, is not a mere possibility, but an absolute certainty that all of those whom God has chosen will come to Christ. And this is a profound statement of the grace of God towards sinners like you and I, that he loved before we ever thought of loving, and he sent his Son before we ever thought of responding. Church, this is the act of an almighty God that through his true character, displaying his love and acting upon it, he sent and he sacrificed his own son to make a perfect way for us to come and respond. That he gives so that we may respond. And so church, this is why the invitation. Because today, if you are without Christ, you are separated from your creator. But when we believe in him, when we believe upon Jesus, when we trust in and rely on and cling to Christ alone, then in him we receive eternal life. See, this is how we are saved. That this is God's purpose of sending Christ That we would be saved by looking to and believing upon Jesus Christ. And so church, this is the beautiful truth of the gospel. That where we have a great need for our Savior, we have a great Savior for our need. And so again, this points us back to the profound truth that this is the work of God. And really, it does not exclude the reality and necessity of human response in repentance and faith, but it does show us that God, who is almighty, loved in such a sacrificial and deep way that he gave his son so that through him we might receive salvation. And so let me tell you today, if you have in your heart an affection for Christ seeing your sin before you and longing for the Savior, then what we see from the Bible is that that is a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That in his sweetness and in his power and in his mercy and his grace, he has been to the grave of your soul and pressed upon it so that you may respond by believing in Christ for eternal life. And so friends, this morning, an invitation is given and I want you to understand, not by me, but by the God of the universe, who is triunal and relational and communal. That in fact, even at the end of our service, every single week when I've shared with you that the elders are available to talk with you and, and pray for you, we ourselves have nothing on our own to offer you. We have only to point you to the invitation of salvation, which the Father wills and the Son secures. So let me ask you, are you going to respond? Are you going to respond to that invitation? See, what we've learned from our text and what the Bible tells us again and again is that you need only to look to Christ and believe that Jesus is the bread of life, the source of healing, the source of rescue from the poison of sin and the wrath of God, that Jesus alone is the source of eternal life. And so church, this is why Jesus said at the beginning of our text, those that come shall not hunger. Those that believe shall never thirst. And so as we come to a close this morning, I want to leave you with a question for you to be asking. Is are you looking to and believing in Jesus? Are you looking to and believing in Jesus? See, really, this is a question that I have laid before you in our study multiple times through the Gospel of John. And I want to encourage you to not consider this only as a thought in your mind, Because this is something that should really shape and control our entire life. Because looking to Christ is not a passive waiting around for something to happen. Looking to Christ is active. Those who look to Christ are those that serve. They are those that give. They are those that confess. They are those who give up sin and press in and believe. And so, church, my prayer is that you would look and believe with a genuine belief and receive salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so this morning, as we come to a close together, I want to leave you by asking, having you asked that question, am I looking to and believing in Jesus? Let's pray.